0: Dispatches, a production of Blurb Inc., is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. This is Dan with Blurb. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico today with Norman Mouskoff, who I uh, have a little admission to make about, which is that, uh, Norman, you've definitely been. A sort of a secret mentor to me for the past couple of years, for sure. I've gotten to spend a fair amount of time with you here in Santa Fe, and uh, we, our dark rooms are butted up against one another, thanks to you for alerting me to that. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. So before we get started, uh, where do you come from?
1: Well, I was born in Brooklyn, but raised in Washington, D.C., and uh, moved away um, to attend Art Center. In Pasadena in 1978. So I lived most of my life. Well, grew up in D.C. From about. I was born in '49. Moved to D.C. in '54.
0: And was did D.C. instill anything in you that you you think you carried with through your life, whether it be a love of politics or a distrust of politics? Is there <laughs> any residue from there? Pretty cynical about politics. <laughs> um, Gee, why why would that be?
1: <laughs> but. Um, What I got that helped me in my photo career was uh, the fact that we grew up, or or our family had a uh, grocery store, mom-and-pop grocery store, and we lived upstairs, it was very old-fashioned, and I had to talk to all the customers, whether Uh I wanted to or not, and be polite. And that laid the foundation, that gave me the skills to enter these communities and talk and listen and uh, get along.
0: Speaking of that, so you started talking to strangers at a young age in the store, and then when did the idea of a camera or, or documenting anything become uh, sort of your first thoughts in regard to that? Well, I was, I was a visual kid. I wasn't that—I
1: um, didn't read a lot. I was not uh, text-oriented. And grew up with comic books, and Mad, Mad Magazine was a huge, oh, yeah. huge I forgot influence. forgot about that. Hence the cynicism. <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, I was a visual kid, and I can remember have her early memories of riding in the back seat of the car with my folks when we would go on trips, and as I would stare out the window and saw something approach, I, as it passed by, I would go click sort of this imaginary shutter. Oh, that's interesting. You know, this is when I was a little kid, but I didn't, and we had a camera, we had a two and a quarter twin lens reflex, but I didn't pay it any mind. And uh, it wasn't until college graduation that th- my parents and my girlfriend then, uh, then, then girlfriend asked, "What do I want for a college graduation present?" And I said, "I
0: wanted a camera. So you graduated from college prior to art Center. Yes, so you went to a different school. I, what, what did you study?
1: I, I studied economics at American University, and God, it was that's a, a smart move. It was a rat. No, it was a radical political economy. It was a social oh. science. <laughs> it was totally unpractical, totally not practical. And, but it was fascinating. It was a social science, and it uh, was a very—it was, was the late 60s, early 70s, and it was the Vietnam War and the whole protests, and it, it then—it f- fueled the cynicism even more.
0: Um, and do you think the cynicism— It made does... me
1: socially aware actually.
0: And did the cynicism, did it, it fuel your initial project? Did it fuel you going to Art Center? So let's say you go back to graduation, you got a camera, what did they, what'd they get you? They got me a knicker mat. Okay, a That's the first camera I had. Screw mount knicker mat. Uh, and so you picked up that camera. What did you do with it initially? And then how long before you said, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to Art Center?
1: My first picture with that camera it was with slide film, and it was a picture of a bird on a telephone wire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you got to start somewhere.
1: And then I moved to flocks of pigeons, leaves in the gutter, frozen ice on the Chesapeake Bay in black and white. I oh, shifted okay. over.
0: All right. And um, did you did you shift back? I mean, I know you still shoot primarily black and white today, but was that was that initial switch over the set in stone, or did you keep fluctuating?
1: I, um, it it got to be pretty set in stone. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I was interested in uh, documentary photography from before I got a camera, actually. And what probably made me ask for a camera was having spent an entire semester or a year at American University in the library, probably the only time I ever went into the library, (laughs) was when I had discovered the complete volumes of Life magazine going back from ni- to 1936, the first issue. And I worked my way through World War II and the great photo essays of Eugene Duncan. Smith. and Dave, Well, David Douglas Duncan and the Korean War and then Eugene Smith's essays. Oh, the best. And so then I, it prompted me to ask for a camera when I got out.
0: What's interesting to me is you just brought up a a point that I want to – I don't know the answer to this, but I find a lot of photographers who come to photography today, meaning 2014, oftentimes come because they've seen a piece of equipment or technology that's interesting or intriguing, and they go, hey, I love that piece of equipment. I think I'm going to be a photographer. I think there's also people that come from the direction that you did, and I think I came a little bit from the direction you did in the sense that I didn't find Life magazine, but I found News Photographer magazine – in the archives at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin. And I poured through that and said, wow, this is pretty interesting. Do you think that that, I, I think that that has a, a profound impact on what you do when you finally get the camera in your hand? Because you've already been exposed to really unbelievable work. That's right. I, I was never a gadget guy, although
1: I love my Leicas, but I love them for what they they give me pictorially, and I pretty much don't care about other cameras and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's a tool, and um, but it, it was the it was the imagery that that got to me. And so, you picked up that camera. How soon before you went to Art Center? Oh, years later. I got the camera in seventy one, and got a job in economics. And uh, I started working freelancing on my own in DC and skipping out of work and doing assignments and then coming back to work late in the day. And I ended up discovering Art Center in a photography catalog in about 1975. And I said, This is for me. I got their catalog, I applied. There was a huge waiting list at that time. Um, I had to wait a year to get, once I was accepted, I had to wait a year before I could actually get into the school and start. And I had, I should back up also, around that time, photography was a hot profession. It was the cover of Time magazine. Because of blow-up? It that- was blow-up and... Um, Photography was just it. There was Art Kane, Bert Stern, David Bailey, yeah, who was the model for yeah the bad boys, up. and um, it was a very sexy profession. So that helped. Also, Life came out with their Time Life photography series mm-hmm. in that period, from when I got my camera
0: to when I went to Art Center. So there was all that going on. Now, I've noticed a, a difference and a change. It's not just in the education system. It's in cu- culturally, I think. But I went to school and graduated in 92. I went to University of Texas. And at the time, if you mentioned the word Brooks or you mentioned Art Center, those were considered, like, ultra boot camp. You came out of those schools, and you were ready to be a part of the professional industry. We I studied photojournalism, and it was more of a funnel of people getting into newspapers and magazine kind of stuff. But... Art Center was like the Holy Grail, and Brooks was the Holy Grail. Brooks more on the technical side, Art center more on the artistic side, and there's still great schools today, but I, I think that there's been a little change in how people view education or view photo education. I think you have a lot more options these days what do you what do you think? Was that time at art Center well spent? For me, it was what I
1: needed. Um, it was a real kick in the ass, and it was like boot camp, and I dedicated myself to it. I was not a great student. At American University, you know sort of party guy because you basketball. Were doing assignments instead of going to class and well no i did, wasn't doing assi- I didn't have a camera at Art Center it was when I was working in economics and it was and that was kind of a holdover too i was i wasn't the greatest employee I had my skills but <laughs> um, so for me art Center and i'm sort of was a there's a trajectory in my life that goes direct from to this day that I can just trace back to, to art, art center. center.
0: Mm-hmm. You that's know, good. Well, that's it, that's a good answer. I mean, it's definitely had an impact on your entire career. I think that's what education. I think a lot of times today, people think that you go into photography school and it's all a technical technical exercise. And I think you do learn a little of the technical side, but it's about things like how to how to look at work, how to review work how to have your own work reviewed how to how to be slaughtered in front of a group of people because they don't like your work and how to deal with that and turn around and not be vengeful and basically take in all kinds of criticism i think that's really what what school is about and i think that that serves you well throughout your entire career regardless of what you do
1: art center instilled along with the the technical skills it instilled a professionalism it it made you do two things you had to trust your instincts. There was no time to waffle. The, the workload was so heavy that you had to plan and uh, run with your idea. And then once you had your idea, you were stuck with it. And if you got slammed in class, you couldn't change. You had to do it over again. And it had to be the same basic photo, but you had to improve either the concept or the technique and so there was this um if you could make it better you did that's that's what it gave that's what art center gave me
0: now i would classify you as a classic documentary or reportage photographer and when i hear art center and classic reportage photographer i don't necessarily put those on the same plane no. how did that happen <laughs> I mean what you because you studied like commercial photography.
1: That's that's what Art Center was about. On the first day there there was a docent's tour and the docent as this tour began said Art Center is the connection between learning and earning. Mm, catchy. Yes. And the um the emphasis was on commercial photography and also editorial photography. And um so Art Center was great. For me, because I ended up having, this, having the ability to earn a living as a photographer. You know, there was work then. <laughs> I, a lot of us thought we missed out on the golden age of photography, the 60s and 70s. But as it happened, the 80s and 90s turned out to be pretty good. So I got out of Art Center, and I didn't have to take a day job. So... It allowed me to make a living, but I ended up being a, sort of a contrarian by nature. There's um, this, the cynicism, the cyn- yeah. Somewhat, <laughs> yeah, there's the cynicism again. <laughs> and um, I have problems with authority and things I'm supposed to do. And since Art Center trained me to become a commercial photographer, I, of course, <laughs> kind of turned my back on it. Rebelled. Rebelled and came back to what interested me in photography in the first place, and that was docu- basically
0: documentary photography. And so, flash forwarding here to several decades, um, you do... Classic long-term reportage essays, and you've done things on horse racing and projects on the South. And you've got how many books books to date? Four. Four published books. Right. So, uh, give us a little background on a couple of the. You know, describe some of the projects, and then the average length of time. I know that's a weird question, but the average length of time that you would put into a project like that.
1: The first book was about the lives of professional rodeo cowboys, and. Uh, <clears throat> All the books kind of came about serendipitously, and the, with the rodeo book, uh, there was going to be a rodeo in Pasadena on the 4th of July in 1983, and I got myself a press pass and took a photo that inspired me. Um, these three cowboys looked very heroic, and the light was nice, and it represented an aspect of American culture. And so I thought, I'd been a photographer a while now, that was 1983, I'd gotten a camera, and 71 and was really bitten by the bug so you figure 12 years passed by and I had studied photography by then and knew about the Americans and Robert Frank and Mary Ellen Mark and Dorothea Lang and all those people and I thought I've taken a picture that represents an aspect of America and it's the, the cowboy and so I went to another rodeo and another rodeo, and then Jack Woody, as it happened, who's the who's owner the, and
0: founder of uh, for, Twin Palms Publishing.
1: Yeah, it was Twelve Trees Press back then. Oh, uh, okay. And he had published uh, maybe ten books. I think he started in 1981, and and some of the books were not photographic; they were um, Don Bacardi, um, you know, pen and ink drawings. And there was a book on Mimbris pottery and there was a book on I um, can't remember who, a precisionist painter, but he had published Bruce Weber and some other people, uh, Todd Webb's um, pictures of, of uh, George O'Keefe anyway, he was in Altadena a suburb of Pasadena and I put a portfolio of about 15 prints together and he and I met that way and uh so for about and he was interested I said are you interested and he said yeah and I said okay I'll come back in 6 months and I went went off and 2 2 years later that's how the book ended up coming together so grand
0: total of about 3 3 years working on the project it was
1: published in in like January late Christmas 85 and I'd started in 83 so it was 2 years in the making and then that led to me going to Santa Anita another local venue where thoroughbred racing mm-hmm. had, has been taking had been taking place and um i got myself a press pass to photograph there and um
0: and again jack was interested let's i want to go back to that because for every photographer that listens to this especially every documentary photographer that seems to be the dream is to run into the publisher and say, hey, I'm working on a project, and the publisher says, hey, bring it by, and then you do, and he goes, yeah, I love this, and two years later, you get a book deal, and then another book deal, and another, and subsequent. What I, what I find very interesting about that is it's that you and Jack have a relationship. It's like, this has gone on now for how many, you know, 30 years? 30 or, years. Yeah, look, you know. that's incredibly rare, I think, and um, what, why do you think that your work was such a great match for him? Or vice versa, why was he such a great publisher to you other than him saying, yes, I'll do this first book?
1: Well, Jack has said, as, as you know, and maybe many people listening to this know that Jack started out publishing some very controversial people, Joel Peter Witkin and, um, and others, and you know, books that dealt with uh, very touchy subjects. But he also had a very classical, has a very sort of classical streak in him about documentary photography, documentary projects. And along with my project on rodeo, Kurt Marcus' book, After Barb Wire, was
0: published. We were on press together, along with Robert Maplethorpe. Maybe Joel Peter Witkin. And Marcus is the name that we've come full circle with right now because I just noticed this morning in the email from the Santa Fe workshops that someone is teaching a workshop with Kurt Marcus coming up, right? (laughs) And it's about what?
1: It's portraiture, classic portraiture. It
0: should be titled Two Guys with Beards and Cameras. (laughs) Uh, Anyone who's listening that wants to take a workshop, that would be a good one to take. So going back to Jack and the the books, um, what is it about a photography book that's so important and so much a part of being a long-term documentary photographer?
1: It's the obsession with the subject. And Jack has said that he likes obsessive projects, people who are obsessive. And, um, And I think when I get hooked on a project, I'm obsessive about it. I mean, I end up looking, I listen to music, that's associated with the subject, you know, country Western music with the cowboys. I end up reading books, looking at paintings. Uh, and
0: you also you did a project on the South and you really got into blues as well, right?
1: That's right. The third book was about African Americans in rural Mississippi, and the the blues music and rhythm and blues I grew up with in d c. It helped that I went to public schools and had black friends. And was around for the civil rights movement. And,
0: now uh, tell me something: where do these ideas? I understand the first two books, but say take the book on the South. Where does the where did that seed germinate for you to say I'm going to Mississippi to to focus on African Americans in rural Mississippi? It sounds incredibly obscure, but now that you're giving me a little details of the you know public school and the music, but where did that come from? Well,
1: as I said earlier, these things kind kind of happen serendipitously, and with that project, um, I was actually interested in doing a project on death row in the South and got started by talking to some lawyers in Atlanta and Sister Helen Perjean, who um, worked with prisoners in in Louisiana. And the lawyers said, have you ever been to the Deep South? I said, well, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And they went, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. It may be a little, have a Southern twang, but you need to come down here and just feel it out. And so at the time... The uh, reissues of the Robert Johnson uh, recordings came out on Columbia Records, on CDs, and it caused a, bo- a little boomlet in the blues, and I thought I could go into the South and get my experience that way, and maybe put together a magazine articles, that a little agency, Matrix. Matrix, oh yeah, with Barbara. With Barbara and John. Um, could uh, sell to European magazines, and so that's what I did. But when I got to the South, I realized there was something way special here, much bigger than the land where the blues began. And so I ended up working in Mississippi off and on from 1990 or 91 to 1996.
0: Good, a good five-year stretch. Six-year five, stretch. Six years. And tell me something, just out of curiosity, on a project like that, how much you're shooting film? I take it, 35 millimeter Tri-X. How many rolls of film do you shoot on a project like that?
1: Over five years, five hundred rolls, which is not a lot, you know. Yeah. Say I spend six months there over a five-year period, you know, going traveling back and forth, and uh, or at the rodeo, I would be out with the cowboys. Um, for a three-month spell, and I'm photographing. I'm looking for photos from when we wake up in the morning until going to bed. At, you know, after the bar scene and just life on the road. So, if I'm looking to take photos in an 18-hour day, and I shoot four rolls, which includes the rodeo, it's not a lot. No, it's not.
0: 140
1: pictures, in you know, for a, a long, long, long day.
0: Yeah, that's uh it's curious. I and mean, I was just asking because of you know the ratio today is a lot different. The most I've ever shot on a project was 150 rolls, but it was over a 5-year period, but it was only 2 weeks at a time. And so it was 2 weeks of very intensive work, but again, I think the rangefinder kind of lends itself towards slow. You're not going to rattle off, you know, a dozen frames with the motor kind of thing. But today it's very different and I'm I'm as guilty. You put a 5D3 in my hand and I'll I'll shoot until, you know, the card melts down. So uh, I want to go back to books a little bit. So let's take the project on the South. How long was it between the time that you said, this is ready to be a book, and that book landing in your hands here in Santa Fe?
1: I finished the principal photography probably in 1994, 95, and then sort of chipped away. The book started to get designed at that point in 94, 95. Here in town or somewhere else? in Santa Fe. Okay. And I've been lucky enough to to live where Twin Palms has been, first in Pasadena and now in Santa Fe. But um, I'm not stalking Jack, but <laughs> he may say otherwise. Disclaimer. But um, so we designed the book. Jack, I have to do a maquette. Jack wants to see my um, version of you know what what my intentions are so i paste together just a xerox scotch tape 100 uh, and some pages 110 100 pages sequence and then i give him that and then he keeps it for a while sometimes a year or 6 months and tweaks it and then hands me back he says here's your book it's wrapped <laughs> up in a rubber band and It's sometimes, it's bits and pieces. It's prints, work, little 8x10 work prints and little sections from the Xerox, the Scotch tape Xerox. And then we see where there are holes in the sequence. I make suggestions and we work very well together. We argue about five photos on each project.
0: Has he, the reason I'm asking this question is a few years ago, I had someone who's a curator in LA look at my work, very spur of the moment. And I put five different essays down in front of her. And she stood there for five minutes and never said a word. And then she pointed and said that, 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 and that. She put five pictures from like five different stories and said, that's your best work. And this is why they all work together. And I had never, ever considered anything like that. I'd never seen my work in that way. And I thought, holy cow. Like she just saw through all of this and saw this new thing. Has he ever shown you a major hole in the project that you didn't know was there or really thrown you a curveball, in a way, when it came to the overall edit.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, I, I was about to say that there would be holes in in the sequence, and I would go out and photograph to try to, to, try to fill those holes, so, you know, how do you get from one section to the next in the sequence, but the latest book, Descendants on Northern New Mexico, totally blew me away. I put together about a hundred and 15 page sequence image sequence and the book came back at 50 pictures but was exquisitely designed I mean he cut right to the the core content of what I had worked on for 10 years in 50 pictures And I was embarrassed. I was thrilled, but I was embarrassed because in my classes, I teach sequencing, but (laughs) I could have never have come up with what he did.
0: I just was in San Francisco for Litquake, and there was an author on the panel who'd gotten a two-book deal from a publisher in Canada, and she said that she sent the manuscript off, and it came back with a third of the book cut and a brand-new introduction, and she said it made her realize two things. The value of an editor... And two, that she's not as good as she thought she was. And uh, I think that that's that's really the point that I'm trying to get across here to people listening to this is that a lot of times we get a very myopic view of our own work, and we're pretty much locked in. And you show it to somebody that's unrelated, that looks at it from a different perspective or for different reasons. Obviously, he's going to print with this book, and a 150-page book versus a 60-page book is a different entity, but it can have a profound impact on your final product.
1: That's true, I, um, I didn't even try to sneak a picture in. Usually I go, oh no, the picture of, you know, Nolan is not in the book, and that's been part of this project for like eight years, you know. But, you know, the orphans find homes elsewhere and slideshows, you know, on the websites and.
0: Well, because the other thing too is that the book is not your portfolio. And I think sometimes that gets confusing. I always tell people when they're going to make something to define what it is you're going to make because one of the photos you may have wanted to put in, you wanted to put in because maybe it was aesthetically just an insanely good or a great moment, and you think, well, that's on itself is amazing. But if it doesn't help tell that actual story, then maybe it doesn't belong.
1: That's right. I mean, I tell this advice to my
0: students, but when it comes to my own work, I don't follow (laughs) it. And so (laughs) speaking of students, you have been teaching for 30 plus years. Correct. And you still are. And uh, I have heard from countless people across the country and the world who have taken your workshops, that it's a pretty life changing event. So what is it about teaching that keeps you inspired? Maybe the parties at night after the class, I knew it. that's the life-changing experience. That's what happens. <laughs> that's a part of it. That's part of your job is to party with the students. That's right.
1: No, I, I'm, I don't think there are that many people who would think of me as a big party person, but not in Santa Fe. Maine,
0: maybe, you know.
1: Oh, I mean, Kate Eiser, yeah. are you out there somewhere? Yeah, she's. she'll listen to <laughs> we this, miss I'm sure. You. <laughs> yeah, where is she now?
0: I don't know. She's probably, you know, I don't know. All right, she's out there Magnum somewhere feelings. we'll track her down and get see if we can get her to listen to this um I don't know i I
1: teach what I teach I'm honest i um try to encourage everybody i'll I will say the first day of class, I want you all to be you know great photographers, you know, make a living at it if that's what you want or and um and I tell them I'm gonna try to first in the critiques. Point out what's good in your work. We're going to, you know, go with the positive first, and then. Uh, but how can we make it better? And
0: um... well, just an observation of you, having been around you now for a few years. I've actually been around you once in the field. We were both shooting down at the Trinity site, and being around you, it, it, there's there's kind of a uh, a dichotomy here of of Norman. So you physically move slowly and you sp- you speak very thoughtfully and very slowly but inside there's this fire burning and i think the fire translates through your knowledge of not only photography but publishing whether it's camera equipment publishing books the who's been what stories have been done you have an unbelievable knowledge of photography that i find very rare and i've also seen your laptop and seen the the kind of content that you have to provide to students so i think perhaps it's the thoughtfulness of of What you do because you also mentor. You have long long term students that you mentor. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, uh, let me just back up one minute, one second here. Um, I do have this archive of photographs that comes from my library, and I have a big library. You know, a couple thousand books, maybe more. And um, I use those books and the pictures in them. I think it's fair use to show pictures in class of the history of photography. And um, so I bring that, I expose people to, to photography that they may not know about. And if they're on the same wavelength as a historical or a contemporary photographer, I say, look, you know, you great minds think alike here, and you should be encouraged by that. And um, so there's that. And uh, I'm very big on
0: people learning the history of photography, but otherwise they're going to reinvent the wheel. Or Uh, they're going to shoot something that they think is original and put it in front of someone who actually knows, and then you're kind of behind the eight ball at that point.
1: Correct. and um,
0: That's common today, I find.
1: And so... That was sort of part one, and so part two of the question was
0: was um, I have no idea, but I I, that was like a minute ago. I'm almost sixty
1: six, and so don't ask me what happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I have Lyme disease, so I I have an excuse as well. So who am I talking to? Uh, Anyway, but let's. uh, I think it was in regards to, you know, you've got this fire burning inside of you. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm I'm aware of what's going on, and I have this. Idea of what I'm after on my on my projects, and so, you know, I'm on all the time. Yeah, I move slowly, and I'm thoughtful, and this and that. But you know, there's there was a big joke, gaff. I I made the mistake when traveling around with the rodeo cowboys once at the end of the day, saying, I'm kind of tired. And they jumped on me. They said, oh, Norman is tired from pushing that little button. (laughs) And these guys have been up in the morning, you know, feeding the horses and all that, riding bulls and this, that, and the other. And so, but you do get tired. You know, you're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're putting out this energy. And, uh, you know, I don't shoot a lot. When I see something I like, I I don't just shoot one frame. There are real nice subconscious pictures that happen, you know, with just one push, you know, just one shot. But I kind of feel something, and then I'll shoot, you know, eight or nine frames.
0: So wrapping this whole thing up, the last question that I have for you is, and I know this is probably a little difficult spur of the moment, but what is the best thing that this life has given you, the life of being a documentary photographer?
1: Well, it was a chance to explore the world. I mean, and meet all these you know amazing people, and you know I've I've photographed the, you know the Indianapolis Five Hundred. This is, has to do with assignment work. You know, I've been sent to Moscow and Sicily, and I've met photographed scientists and um, just. Been all around the United States, and uh, I mean, I feel like the United States is my beat. I mean... uh,
0: That was another question I had for you, is that your books are all done in the U.S., and that you, you have traveled, but you primarily focus on the U.S., and I think that's a really... Uh, refreshing take on things, because when I went to photo school, we were talking earlier about Larry Burroughs, that was the work that really got me into being a photographer, was Larry, the color work from Larry Burroughs in Vietnam, and then I realized I'm way too much of a chicken shit to actually ever go to a war zone, and so I have done a fair amount of travel, but the older I get, the more I realize that this is really the place that I want to work, and w- why is it, What what was what was it about the U.S., or what wasn't it about scattering yourself around the world?
1: Well, my parents are European. They're from Eastern Europe. And so um, I grew up in an immigrant household, and there was a drive, a pressure. I wouldn't call it a pressure, but a desire on my parents' part and on my part to be an American, for their kids to be an American. And as Robert Frank used to say to his friends about New York, what a place, what a place, what a town, what a town. To me, the United States is like, man, what a country, you know, just like what an amazing place. And then if you take the sort of rebellious and cynical part of my personality and you look at my subject matter in these projects, they're sort of mainstream, a part of the fabric of America, But they're also out of the mainstream cultures also. If you think about Mm African-Americans. Descendants. Cowboys, the northern New Mexico Hispanic community, even the characters at the racetrack. You know, these are all what used to be called subcultures. Fringe. Fringe, you know, cultures. And then I have a big unpublished project on prostitution in Nevada brothels that I did in the 1980s, late 80s. And so there's that sort of rebellious, you know, part streak in my personality
0: so it's it's remarkable to me that it's carried through for this long and I think that's a testament to you because it's so easy in photography to get in and let's say that you get an assignment shooting a celebrity portrait and it pays relatively well and someone says oh you know and you're thinking well I want to be a documentary photographer but then you find yourself shooting celebs five days a week and and you know there's an upside of you yes you are working as a photographer but that that sort of Internal voice is saying what are you doing? What are you doing? That's I'm saying that because it's happened to me over and over again not with celebrities luckily, but uh, I think that's a testament to you because what you just described to me. I've known you for a while now I didn't I never put that together. I never I didn't know about your parents I didn't know the idea of being an American and then you know seeing these I never even looked at the books all as subculture books which I think is interesting because you know descendants in the northern New Mexico culture that was one of the first cultures in the history of the United States. And I, I find it in, incredibly fascinating how it, it is sort of viewed that way and, and how few people actually know about that culture, even other people in New Mexico. So it's a that's a phenomenal book and a phenomenal project. I keep that on my the front of my bookshelf in California. If you look at Robert Frank, at the Americans, you know, he was a naturalized citizen
1: also, came from Switzerland. And that book is a kind of, it's an outsider's look at then contemporary america and it's somewhat rebellious yeah for
0: sure yeah there were mixed for sure. mixed, reviews. mixed reviews yeah but that's one of the books i think is so important because it transcends far outside of the photography world you know i run into quote unquote civilians and it's one of the books that you can mention and they say yes i know about that book you know there are names in photography that i think transcend luckily well, I really appreciate—I think this is the longest interview I've ever done. I could talk to you all day long, so I think uh, there's a lot of great information in there, but I really appreciate you taking time to, to spend with me. I know I ambushed you when I came into town, so uh, I am going to go to the darkroom later this week, so I don't know if you're, you're headed see over. see you in there. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thank, thanks again. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for coming over.